open God's word this morning from, uh, first from Exodus, then from 2 Timothy. Read Exodus uh, from chapters 7 and 8, pages 58 and 59 in your pew Bible, part of the story, boys and girls, of Moses and Pharaoh. Uh, Paul refers to this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he mentions uh, two men named uh, Janus and Jambres. These are the two magicians, the, the two sorcerers that we read of here. We'll, I read a longer section, Exodus 7 verse 8, all the way to 8 verse 19. It says, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded, Aaron cast on his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men, the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast on his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. The Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become blood. There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did so, as the Lord commanded. At the sight of Pharaoh and at the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff and struck the water in the Nile, and the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. And then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. It shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you with your people and on all of your servants And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, 
And the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. They gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. You can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter and focus especially on verses 1 to 9, pages 11, or page 1182 in your pew Bible. This is God's word. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into houses and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving 
and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As far the reading of God's word. Beloved, in these uh, first five verses or so of 2 Timothy 3, they read something like a, a catalog of the times in which we live. I heard one, one pastor uh, say it might be an interesting exercise to, to pick up a, a copy of, of the newspaper or to go through and read just the, the news articles from the last few days and see how many of these uh, 19 characteristics of a godly society might, might match up with, with what we read. Read of people being lovers of, of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, Abusive, it, it sounds a lot like the times in which we live. And yet it's written to Timothy for the times in which he lived. In other words, Paul is, is not primarily writing to Timothy uh, only about some other period 2,000 or more years off in the distance. But he's writing to him also about the times in which he lived which are are the same times in which we live, called by Paul, the last days, uh, spanning from Christ's first coming and uh, his ascension all the way to his second coming when Christ comes back from heaven. As we heard just a few moments ago in the call to worship, God has spoken to us, Hebrews 1, in these last days concerning his son, and so that the period that Scripture over and over refers to as the last days began, when in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son to die, rise, and descend into heaven, and then pour out His Spirit, leading Peter to say on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, "This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel that in the last days God would pour out His Spirit." The last days, according to the teaching of the New Testament, began at Christ's first coming. And so the difficult times of which Paul speaks are are not just something in the far-off, distant future. They're they're not just something for the the very end of the world, but, but something that is to characterize the whole age between Christ's two comings. Perilous times, as the old King James says during which Timothy is not to be surprised by such peril, but as, as we see in reading on to the rest of the chapter, is to press on and preach the word. Preach the word in perilous times. That's Paul's message to Timothy and his message to us. As he reminds us, first of all, of the times in which we live, and that's where we'll, we'll spend most of our time, Then he reminds us also of the word in which we trust. Preach the word in perilous times. Don't be surprised by evil both in the world and in the church, but preach the word and trust that God will do the rest. Look at me first at the times in which we live. 
Again, Paul calls these, in verse 1, times of difficulty. This word um, that's, that's translated as difficulty, it could be uh, translated dangerous or, or fierce. It's used one other time in the New Testament, back in Matthew chapter 8. That passage that we heard, I think, Luke's version of from Reverend Hunt a few weeks ago about the man of tombs, the, the pigs who ran over the cliff, boys and girls. You, you remember how that man was, was demon-possessed, and, and it said that he was so fierce that Matthew said no one could even pass by him. And that same Greek word that's there translated as fierce is here used by Paul to describe this period called the last days. It will be difficult days, fierce days. One uh, lexicon defines this word as hard to bear, painful, sore, and grievous. This age will be marked by the same kind of danger, the, the same kind of opposition to Christ and his purposes in this world that we see in that encounter in Matthew 8 between Christ and that demon-possessed man. As the behavior of that man then was, was fierce, hard to bear, painful, and grievous, so the opposition that God's people in the age between Christ's two comings will experience is going to be painful and difficult. Which Paul then begins to describe in a bit more detail in verse 2 where he, he says that in this period called the last days, people will be lovers of self. And then you notice at the very end of the list, at the end of verse 4, he says that they will not be lovers of God. There's, in fact, three other phrases in this list that speak of either what they will love or what they will not love. They will love money, they will love pleasure, and they will not love what is good. And so in both the beginning and the end of this passage, as well as the middle, Paul makes the point that, that people's love will be misdirected. What is fundamentally wrong with the people that Paul here describes is that their love is misdirected. Instead of loving God, they love self. They love pleasure. They love money. And from this misdirected love flow all kinds of other vices that Paul mentions. He, he reminds us that what is fundamentally wrong with, with the human condition is that we love the wrong things. And, and so from that misdirected love flow all of these other sins that Paul mentions throughout the rest of the passage. When we are narcissistic self-lovers at heart, we tend to become greedy. Hence Paul's comment about loving money. We become proud because we are the, the center of our universe. He's, he's saying when you love yourself, you're, you're going to, to become proud. And that pride will then be revealed in disdain towards others. You notice Paul mentions both pride and arrogance. That first word for pride is, is um, speaking more of, of a, a sinful self-focus, but the second word for arrogance is describing a haughty or disdainful attitude towards others. In other words, Paul is saying when we think that we are the best and we love ourselves, we tend to hate others. Or John Stott says those who have an exaggerated opinion of themselves tend to look down with contempt on others. That's the point that Paul is making, which then leads to the abusive behavior 
that he mentions next. When the world revolves around you and your love for self, you, you tend to hurt others. And not only with, with your actions, he'll get to that later when he speaks of, of brutality, but also with your words. Is, is this Greek word that, that he uses for uh, abusive, it's in verse 2, proud, arrogant, abusive, is this, this word has the idea not so much of, of abusive actions, but abusive speech. It's um, elsewhere translated as slanderous or speaking evil, railing or blaspheming. So hearts that are filled with love for self lead to proud, disdainful, and harmful speech towards others, even towards those closest to you. As the next part of the passage, we'll begin to zero in on the realm of the family, as Paul mentions those who are disobedient to parents. And then the next word is, is ungrateful. Often, when children do not obey their parents, they are not grateful for what they've done. And then the next word, unholy, is often used in Greek literature to refer to filial respect, the kind of respect that a, a son owes his father. But in this case, as Paul describes, that respect will not be shown. Uh, nor will the natural affection that, that children and parents are to have for each other, but they will be heartless and unappeasable or irreconcilable. So this is talking about a situation, perhaps still in the family, where there is an unwillingness to reconcile, an unwillingness to forgive or, or confess. Paul's saying this is where self-love leads, to conflict, to pride, to an unwillingness to admit wrong. The, the list goes on, to be slanderous and without self-control, to be brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. This is Paul's description of mankind apart from God. Lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God. Narcissistic, materialistic, and hedonistic. Loving pleasure. This leads to conflict in the family. It leads to the degradation of society. It leads to brutality and recklessness. Self-love, while it may be the first commandment of modern society, is, according to Paul, deadly. As a young people, when the world around you tells you that you need to be true to yourself and love yourself, look at this list and see where self-love leads. The Bible does not command us to love ourselves. It takes for granted that we do, and assuming that says love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a command of self-love. Paul here says, in times of difficulty and distress, the chief characteristic of unbelieving man will be love of self and not love of God. We'll exchange the first and greatest commandment for greedy, narcissistic, pleasure-seeking self-love. And then in breaking the first table of the law and idolizing self, we will not keep the second, but, but we will hate our neighbor. And Paul says this will not only be the case in the world, but also in the church. In verse 5, he says, These men will have the appearance of godliness, but they will deny its power. And Paul here makes clear that he is not only talking about the world outside of us, but also those in the church will have an appearance of godliness, 
but will be swollen with conceit, abusive, slanderous, and will love themselves. The commentator Denny Burke says this describes those who, who externally have all the, the accoutrements of authentic religion and piety. They go to church, they wear the right clothes, they say the right things, yet on the inside they differ not at all from the world. They take the name of Christianity on their lips, but they do not have the power of Christ in their lives. They are formalists who go through the motions, but do not love God. Who profess to love Christ, but in actuality love themselves. Paul is saying such exist even in the church of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's why there's a growing number of books about narcissism in the church. Maybe that's why there are so many scandals of abuse because Paul says self-loving abusers will make their way even into the church professing to love God but in reality loving self and hating God who are not seed of the woman but seed of the serpent. In fact, many have pointed out that this list, in beginning with with self-love and then ending with not loving God, it it sort of follows this this, uh, chiastic parallel pattern where the the first things uh, at the list are reflected at the end of the list and and so on. And and directly in the middle of that pattern is the word for, for slanderers, which is literally diaboloi. It sounds a lot like the word for devil that was just used in 2 verse 26. Maybe a wordplay highlighting that these people are just like their captor. The father of lies, that ancient slanderous accuser. Even in the church, people ensnared by the devil to do his will. That's the point that he just made in 2 verse 26. And now he's, he's connecting this back to that. Those who are, are brutal, treacherous, not loving good, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Ensnared by the devil. This list of vices, and particularly Paul's comment in verse 5, reminds us that such exist even in the church. Even among her leaders, those who are proud, arrogant, abusive, those who are lovers of money, and every time you turn on the TV, they're, they're preaching again about tithing and, and reaping what you sow so that they might become rich on the backs of those who continue to give. And yet it doesn't exist only among the leaders of the church, but also among her members, those who are disobedient, ungrateful, heartless, irreconcilable, lacking self-control, and swollen with conceit. This list of these 19 or so vices is not given just so that we may point uh, at the world outside of us and shake our head at the signs of the times, but it's given also so that we might look within ourselves and ask, does this describe me? If I'm honest, do I love pleasure more than I love God? Do I love money, which Christ says you cannot love both God and money? Am I arrogant and abusive in the way that I speak to others? Is it possible for me to be reconciled or am I unappeasable? Do I ever change my mind? Do I possess the power of godliness or do I merely possess the form, focusing uh, merely on externals, maybe even arguing about them in a spirit not of humility as in the section just before this? 
Part of the purpose of this passage is to lead us to ask these questions. That's why Paul says in verse 10, right after going through all of this, says to Timothy, you, however, follow my example and my conduct. In other words, make sure that you are not living like that, Timothy, but in contrast to that, walk in the way that's described in verses 10, 11, and 12. And Paul would say the same thing to us this morning. Follow the example that we have in the apostles and not in the deceivers ensnared by the devil. He would have us to ask this morning, are you a lover of God or are you a lover of self? Are you humble or are you proud and arrogant? Are you gentle or do you use words to harm? Do you love money? Or do you give it freely? Do you love pleasure and pursue it at all costs such that you have no self-control? Or do you have what Paul calls in verse 5 the power of godliness? And would other people answer those questions the same way that you just did? What about your family? Would they say that you are unappeasable, that you abuse with your words and love yourself and love your money? This passage forces us to ask these questions and come to terms with the fact that the church contains even such people. We're further described in verses 6 through 9 as creeping into households to capture weak women who are always learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth, women who are burdened with sins but led astray. These kinds of abusive, unappeasable, self-loving, quarrelsome men who exist even in the church, Paul says, have a disciple-making zeal. Like the scribes in Matthew 23 who Christ says, travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte who then becomes twice as much a child of hell as them. These kinds of arrogant, self-loving, unappeasable men and women with a form of godliness but denying its power. They, they love to make disciples. They love to sneak in the back door, as Paul says in verse 6, capturing those who are easily deceived, prowling around with their literature and their, their secret speculation, their quarrelsome words and irreverent vain babble to capture others and make them like them. And so Paul says, watch out. Avoid such people. And do not be those who are easily captured by them, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, easily swayed by those who prowl around, whether on the internet or in the church, with their secret speculation. But be on guard against those who oppose the truth with their form of godliness but their denial of its power in their lives. He says, be on guard against those who pay lip service to God but not life service and who ultimately deny that which is the power that enables godliness. The gospel, Romans 1.16 says, is the power of God. Here, Paul is, is again calling us to rightly divide the word of truth, to remember these things, 2 verse 14, and not swerve from the truth as these false leaders among them had. And then he, he, as he's saying this, gives us an Old Testament example in verses 8 and 9. 
from that passage that we read, comparing these false teachers in his day who have a form of godliness but deny its power, he, he compares them to Janus and Jambres, the Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses. Just as they opposed Moses, so these men are opposed to the truth and corrupt in mind, disqualified from the faith, oppose God's truth, and oppose God's servants. Trying to keep people enslaved. Christopher Ashe points out, in in opposing Moses, these two sorcerers in Exodus 7 and 8, they, they were taking the side of the enslavers. Ultimately, they wanted to keep God's people under the cruel burden of slavery. Likewise, these, the, the, the false teaching of these men in Paul's day, it enslaves. That's the point of verse 6. It, it takes those who have troubled consciences, who are, are burdened with sin, and never sets them free. The gospel redeems and sets free. It rescues from slavery, but false teaching enslaves. It leads to burdened people who never know the truth that sets them free. That's the connection that Paul is making between Janus and Jambres and these, these false teachers. We have a form of godliness, a form of, of piety or, or spirituality, even perhaps being able to mimic the works of God like Janus and Jambres, but not knowing him. He's saying just as that happened then, it will continue to happen now. Paul reminds us there is nothing new under the sun. But he also reminds us that just as those men did not get very far, boys and girls, you remember how Aaron's serpent swallowed up theirs in defeat? You remember how ultimately they could not reproduce that plague of the gnats and they were left to admit this is the finger of God, we can't do it, we lose? Paul is also reminding us that just as they did not get very far, but the power of God trumped their form of godliness, so these wolves who sneak into the church of the last days will not get very far, but their folly will be exposed to all, as was that of those two men. So Paul is making a a typological connection between those opponents of God and these opponents of God. And Paul so often does that as he's making use of the Old Testament. He shows us how there are types and patterns then that point to types and realities, or the, the, the anti-type now. And so often he'll do that with, with Christ, uh, showing how Christ is the greater David or the greater Moses or, or the one greater than Jonah, but he'll also do that with the opponents of God, showing how there are, are patterns and parallels between God's opponents then and his opponents even now. He just did that, in fact, at the end of chapter 2 with Korah's rebellion, that um, instance that he quoted from twice in 2 Timothy 2.19, where Korah and Dathan and Abiram rebelled against Moses in Numbers 16. And you remember, Paul pointed to the judgment of those who oppose the truth, and, and here he does so again, reminding us they will not get very far, but the truth of God and the life-giving gospel of freedom will prevail. And so Paul's encouragement to Timothy and his encouragement to us in these last days is once again not to fret when we look around and and we see the collapse of of society and the the intrusion of, of a godless culture and godless false teachers even into the church. He reminds us they will not prevail. 
false teaching of the prosperity gospel, the false teaching of so-called sexual liberty that actually enslaves, the, the false teaching of every cult and every sect, they will not prevail, but Christ will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even in the midst of of the fierce difficulty and pains of this age, even in the midst of a world that is crumbling, at a church that, that sometimes has wolves as shepherds, Paul says, don't be afraid, but remember what I said in 2 verse 9 and 2 verse 10, that the word of God is not bound. As we'll sing in a bit, that that word above all earthly powers, it abides and its kingdom is forever. And so what what Paul is going to charge Timothy to do then in in the rest of of the chapter, this is why we read the whole thing, is to preach the word in perilous times, to not be surprised by this kind of thing, both in the world and in the church, throwing up his hands in defeat or, or looking to other means, but to preach the word and trust that word above all earthly powers will do the work. Paul and the rest of 2 Timothy 3 will remind us that the answer for this ugly portrait of the human condition is the gospel. The answer ultimately for the times in which we live is the word in which we trust, for it is the power of God. Just look at the rest of the chapter. Notice the emphasis on the word. Paul tells him in verse 10 to follow my teaching and my faith. Verse 11, he tells him to follow my sufferings, which we know from earlier in the book are sufferings for the gospel. He uh, says in verse 14, continue in what I have taught you. The sacred writings that you have known from childhood, the God-breathed scriptures of verses 16 and 17 that will equip you, the man of God, for every good work. Almost every verse in the rest of the chapter emphasizes the urgency of preaching the word in these difficult days. As you are see, uh, pastor and missionary Michael Brown has, has said in his commentary on 2 Timothy, Paul paints this dismal picture of the last days to help Timothy and us understand the urgency of preaching the word of God faithfully. He wants Timothy to put his confidence not in himself, but in the word, which alone, verse 15, is able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ. That's why he goes on in verses 16 and 17 to speak of the authority of the scriptures and verses, or four, verses one to five to charge him to preach the word. Nothing but the power of the gospel can change the radical corruption of the human heart. And the same confidence that Paul wants Timothy to have, he wants us to have. To recognize only the gospel provides the radical solution to this radical corruption that is described in 2 Timothy 3. This radical corruption of both those within the church and those in the world around us. He wants us not to look for external solutions to the internal problem of sin, but he wants us to preach the word. Again, Brown says, we we tend to think that more laws or better policies can, can produce righteousness in the human heart, that if we just elect the right leader or pass the right law, then times of difficulty will come to an end. And while those things are certainly good, the godlessness that Paul describes in verses 1 to 9 will not be overcome by them, but we need the gospel. 
which Paul has just said in 2 verse 9, is not bound. It is the power of God. Do we believe that? That even in godless days and times of difficulty, God is able to use his word to overcome the evils that are listed in this passage. The evils of those in the world and those in the church ensnared by the devil, like that demon-possessed man in Matthew 8 who fiercely oppose the word. Do we believe that God's word can overcome Or do you believe, even as it has exposed you this morning in your sin, that the word has power to save? And so we don't need to throw up our hands in defeat, but we we run to Jesus Christ who has preached to us in the gospel that Paul has been expounding all throughout this book. Do we believe that God's word has the power to save and has the power to overcome? Brown says, herein lies the answer to how Christianity will survive in times of difficulty in the last days. It will survive the same way it did in the first century when it passed from Paul to Timothy and Timothy to those faithful men who would teach it to others. It will survive in our day even as we see Christianity moving into cultural exile. It will be passed on to the next generation not by Christians winning all the culture wars but by guarding the good deposit and making disciples. By preaching the word in which we trust. As you consider the state of the world around you, is that where you're placing your hope? In laws or in the gospel? And this is true not only as we think about how we, how we view the world around us, but even within the church. As you read those verses and you consider the sin even within your own heart or your own home. What is the answer? Is it more laws? Is it more commands? Or is it the life-giving freedom that comes to us only from Jesus Christ? As, As we heard last week, from the expulsive power of a new and greater affection as Christ is held up for us and we behold the King in His beauty. Where is the answer? Is it in the law or is it in the gospel? Is it in more laws societally or is it in the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth? This, this passage reorients us to, to consider what are the means fundamentally, the, the primary means by which God works. Yes, we pray for God, godly rulers in society. Yes, we want the law of God to go forth in the church. But we need the gospel. We have the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Where do we put our trust? That, that's what, what Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is, is leading us to ask. In the midst of difficult times, there is fierce difficulty both within the church and within the world. Where do we put our trust? And then in addition to that, He leads us to ask the question, and he answers it for us, what what exactly ought we to expect? Even as this passage reminds us of the folly of those who, who oppose the gospel and that they will not get very far, but the word will triumph, it also reminds us that that word triumphs even in the midst of fierce opposition. So that we should not expect a utopia where this side of glory, things will ever get to the point where the world around us will not be characterized by these things. 
If I, I can say it this way, this passage teaches us not to be overly optimistic in our eschatology, but to see that the whole age that Scripture calls the last days, that is, the period between Christ's two comings, will be characterized by narcissism, greed, hedonistic love of pleasure, and a denial of the power of God. And so even as the word of the gospel goes forth, it will be much like in the book of Acts, in the midst of suffering. The word will advance even as there is fierce opposition. God, through the preaching of the gospel, will overcome the folly of those like Janus and Jambres who oppose the gospel both from outside the church or from within, but he will not erase it completely. Not yet. But he tells us to expect that the last days will be days of fierce gospel opposition, pride, and evil. As we place our hope in the gospel, we also realize that that gospel of a suffering Savior advances in the midst of suffering. God calls us to put our trust in the word. He calls us to remember that the kingdom comes through suffering And therefore not to get worked up and worry as we look around as if God has somehow lost control, but to believe, verse 9, that those who oppose the gospel will not get very far. But that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. We trust that God's truth abideth still and his kingdom is forever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your word, that it will go forth and those who oppose it will not get very far. Whether those from without who seek to enslave and oppress with their their God-denying ideologies, whether those from within who seek to enslave with their form of godliness that denies the power of the gospel. Lord, we pray indeed that they would not get very far. This passage leads us even to to pray ultimately that every conspiracy against your holy word, your people, and your gospel, and your son will be destroyed. And also, Lord, it calls us to examine ourselves and, and look within. And pray that this description, particularly of what we find in verse five, would not be true of us. Nor would we be those who are always learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, not able to to withstand the, the false teaching of the world around us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold fast to the gospel and to believe that your purposes in this world will prevail and then to act on that belief through, through planting churches and through training up preachers and, and through seeing to it that the word be translated into those, those languages that do not yet have it and, and through teaching our children this word above all earthly powers that you promise will go forth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love and cherish this word even as we look next week at the end of the chapter that talks about the authority and sufficiency of this word. We we pray that in both what we have just heard and what we will hear next week that you would work in us a a love and, and devotion to your word. We pray in Jesus' name.